0: and what to do. Listen to he Robert want to Costa lose lies his Politics, and Democracy, Republican PBS CPB's phone line. Seriously, by the leaders of the party, Trump, but he doesn't I mean want him. to lose Trump's favor. There's a really interesting Mike phone call. Pence. Hang Mike Pence Mike
1: Pence between Quayle and Pence. Do you talk about that phone call and what Mike Pence's is, you know, process and anguish that he's
0: going through at that moment is? There is no one in the world who understands Mike Pence perhaps better than Dan Quayle. Both Indiana Republicans White males who have served as vice president for Republican presidents. There are only two people in the world who fit the profile of Mike Pence and Dan Quayle. Two male Republicans from Indiana who served as vice president of the United States. Dan Quayle was at the lectern on January 6, 1993, overseeing the certification of his own defeat. He was someone who had been in the shoes Pence was about to put on. Pence calls up Quayle, vice president to vice president. What do you think I should do? Quayle says. You don't have any options. There's one thing you do here. You certify the election. Penn says, I understand, but you don't understand the pressure I'm under. Trump wants me to do something. There's a huge appetite inside of this White House to somehow fight this, to block the certification. Quayle says, I get it. I understand the president's angry, but you don't have options. This, you're an overseer of the certification. The MC, the maitre d', nothing more. Pence understands, he says, he listens again, but says, this is a tough situation. We're hearing about voter fraud in states like your own, Arizona. Quayle now lives in Arizona. Quayle says, I, don't buy it, Mike. There's no fraud here. This is not a legitimate claim of fraud. Don't buy into the claims of fraud. Just do your job. Pence listens. He trusts Quayle. They're friends. They're both conservative Republicans. Uh, but he, this was a gut check for Pence. Call up Quayle, someone who's done this before, someone who's overseen a defeat on another January 6th, and get the advice. It was a critical moment for Pence to hear it from Quayle himself, another vice president, not a political advisor on the payroll, not from someone close to Trump, not from some random lawyer. He was hearing advice from a former vice president who had been through the same thing. And Vice President Quayle had one message again and again, you have nothing to do but certify the election. You stand up there, you smile, you certify it, and you go home. Nothing more. So going to the day
1: of January 6th and to the speech and to mentioning Mike Pence, I mean, he's tried to get Pence to go along with him. Maybe he holds up, he'll change his mind despite the fact that they issued a statement. But what is Trump doing? Is he appealing to the mob in that moment? What do they think that they are doing when they are telling the crowd to fight? What is the plan at that point? And what is going on when he's talking about
0: Pence to those people? As someone who has covered Trump for over a decade, there's no happier moment for Donald Trump than when he's revving up a crowd. I've seen it in Arizona. I've seen it in Texas. I've seen it in Florida. He loves to have the crowd in the palm of his hand and not worry about the consequence of what he's saying to stir them up, to show their loyalty through roar after roar. He likes to have the crowd with him. He wants the crowd to be as big as possible. January 6, 2021, presented Trump with one of his biggest crowds, his most enthusiastic and fervent crowds, and he wanted them to do whatever they wanted to prove their loyalty. Maybe that was marching up to the Capitol. Maybe that was rallying outside of the White House. He didn't think that far ahead about what it would all mean. But he liked chaos. He likes when the crowd becomes frenzied. Because it's a show of appreciation for him. We can't read Donald Trump's mind about what he wanted from that crowd. But it's certain through his words that day that he wanted action. He wanted people to stand with him and fight. Trial by combat, as Giuliani said.
1: Could you take us to the Capitol and to their chanting you know, hang Mike Pence. He is now a target of the the crowds. And what is happening with him?
0: Once Pence releases his letter and it circulates immediately on social media, Trump supporters erupt. They can't believe it. Pence is breaking with Trump. He's not going to do what the president wants. They explode on Pennsylvania Avenue, on the steps of the Capitol, because of the letter. They read it and realize Pence isn't going to go along. Once the Trump supporters at the Capitol realize that Pence has issued a formal letter saying he's not going to do what Trump wants, they began to chant, hang Mike Pence, find Mike Pence, take down Mike Pence. They want to find the man they now blame for enabling Joe Biden to become the next president. And anyone who's going along with the certification is seen as an enabler of Biden. They want to find them and they want a confrontation. Pence is inside the chamber. Secret Please, Service pulls him out. The crowd's in the building, sir, they say. We need to move you to a safe location. They move him to the side, to an office nearby the Senate chamber, and then ultimately down the stairs to a secure area where he's waiting by his motorcade. His aides say, sir, maybe it's best we leave. Maybe we should leave the Capitol. He says to his Secret Service agents, I'm not going to get in that car. I'm not going to leave. I need to stay. Because he knows the minute you get in the motorcade, that motorcade will take you away, and it will take you to a secure location. Who knows when you get back to the Capitol to continue the certification of the election. So Pence decides to stay. He declines the offer to leave the Capitol. And what's happening at the White House,
1: especially as regards Pence? The president tweets at 224. What is his
0: attitude towards Pence, and what is he doing? Trump is watching television from the dining room near the Oval Office, processing it all, pleased to see his supporters with him, his supporters at the Capitol. He's not horrified by what's happening. People who came in to see him in the dining room say he was watching television almost like he would be watching a golf match keeping an eye on it all, uh, not really reacting to it in an emotional way, happy to see his supporters out there. When he's updated on Pence's condition, that Pence is safe, he shrugs and says, oh, okay, thanks for the update. Uh, But this is someone who's not really that concerned, based on our reporting, about what was happening with Pence, because he knew Pence had broken with him. Uh, Pence was safe. He assumed the Secret Service had him together. Uh, but he liked that his supporters were fighting. He wasn't worried about Pence's safety, at least that wasn't top of mind, based on our reporting. But he was someone who was loving that the crowd was fighting. I mean, to be tweeting about him in the midst of that, I mean, what message was that sending? Eastman, Trump, and others are still pressuring Pence as the riot begins to do something, to object to the certification. The pressure campaign led by Trump went to the, the final moment on January 6th, even as people are storming the Capitol, the president is unrelenting. He won't back off of his push to have Pence walk away. He wants Pence to do something. So the pressure campaign continued, even without Trump being physically there. His people are there pressuring Pence. And for Trump, it was something to watch, not something, at first at least, to stop. We haven't talked much about
1: but who has made a similar agreement or similar calculation as Lindsey Graham that staying close to Trump is worth it is Kevin McCarthy. And at this moment on January 6th is a moment where he's going to see how much influence he actually has in a phone call to Trump. What is that phone call? What is he asking of Trump? And what does he get as a result?
0: McCarthy says to Trump, you need to call these people out of here. You need to get them out of the Capitol. McCarthy's office was... Being bombarded with with rocks and pelted by people with metal bars. In the days after January 6th, I walked through McCarthy's office just to see it. And you could still see the cracks in the windows, the trash outside. McCarthy's office was being ransacked on January 6th by the rioters. McCarthy's office was ransacked, cracked windows, trash everywhere. His staff was in fear of their lives uh, being taken. Uh, this was a moment of true fear inside of the U.S. Capitol, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, that your life was at risk. McCarthy tells Trump, you have to get these people out. Trump says to McCarthy, Kevin, these people believe that I won more than you did. That's where Trump's mind was in the conversation with McCarthy, about loyalty, about the election supposedly being stolen in Trump's view. It wasn't about McCarthy's safety or Pence's safety. It was about loyalty and political obedience. Trump wanted loyalty and obedience from McCarthy, even as violence consumed the Capitol. But I mean, talk about loyalty. Kevin McCarthy is somebody who has gone along with Trump
1: from the very beginning. And he even objected he it to the election. And who objected to the election? I mean, does Kevin, I mean, when you look at that situation, does the loyalty only go one way with Donald Trump? How does Kevin McCarthy view, you know, what did he get in exchange for the loyalty that he had provided up until that moment?
0: By working closely with Trump, McCarthy came closer to the speakership. He has remained the leader of House Republicans because he has remained an ally of President Trump. McCarthy's political capital inside of the House Republican Party is intertwined with his relationship with Donald Trump. If you take away the relationship with Trump, McCarthy knows you don't have much of a relationship with your core members who have that relationship with Trump or who have that admiration for Trump. McCarthy if anything, is a political operator. He knows where the power is inside the GOP. It's with Trump. And as long as it's with Trump, McCarthy is going to be with Trump. Another moment that's about Ted Cruz, they're trying
1: to decide are they going to continue to object? Is Ted Cruz going to continue to object? And it seems like, once again, it's a situation of following. And it's a situation of following Josh Hawley. And can you describe what happens in the calculation that that Ted Cruz makes in that moment?
0: Some of the more moderate members of the Republican Party pull Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley aside when they're in a secure area, and they whisper to the objectors, maybe it's time to lay down your arms politically, maybe it's time we just move forward with this entire process. Let's not object. But still, even as people are being killed, As part of the insurrection, some Republican senators say, we are going to continue to object. That's just who we are. That's what we're going to do. We're here to help President Trump object to the election. Some Republican senators say to them privately, you can't do this. This is an insurrection. Back off. But they won't back off. And what a revealing snapshot of the Republican Party. Even at the moment of violence, When they're in a secure area because the Capitol is being attacked, some Republicans say to their own colleagues, sorry, we're moving ahead with Trump's agenda, what Trump wants, because that's where our party is, and that's where we are. So Lindsey Graham, where is he in that moment? Lindsey Graham is frustrated. He's emotional, and he says he's had enough with this entire fight spearheaded by Trump. But he doesn't really break with Trump at his political core. It's a moment of grievance about Trump, but not a total break. Graham is someone who is still talking to Trump days later about how he should rehabilitate himself and run for president again in 2024. There is a momentary spasm of frustration with Trump, but it doesn't last. Those speeches on the Senate floor, Senator Graham, Senator Lee, show their frustration with the president, taking it to this point, to the point of a capital attack. But they don't want to see themselves distanced too much from the man who has all the power. I mean, you described that he's confronted by Trump supporters in those days after oh, January 6th. Yeah. I mean, he must see the power of, oh, yeah, that's of a great, the base. That's great imagery, too. And Senator Graham feels the heat immediately after that speech, approached in an airports and Trump supporters say to him, you're a traitor. You're the worst. You're expletive. Graham nods. He takes it. He grimaces as he makes his way through the airport. And he recognizes that if he wants a future in the Republican Party, he certainly can't break with Donald Trump. He can have his own position on January 6th, his own position on whether Trump went too far. But Trump is the party and it's visceral. There's an almost violent edge to the way Graham is criticized on social media and elsewhere. They see Graham as not just someone who opposes Trump's position on January 6th at that time, but someone who's a traitor, traitorous. Uh, This is the kind of way Graham is cast immediately by Trump supporters, and Graham quickly works to rehabilitate himself with Trump and with Trump supporters. It it was a, a moment of dissent from the Trump position, and he quickly found his way back. There's an extensive description in the book of Graham in that period after
1: January 6th, where he continues to see himself as the Trump whisperer, as somebody who can moderate him, who can get him off talking the election. And it's like Groundhog Day. I mean, can you describe what Graham is trying to get from Trump, but that he just cannot, you know, for all of the golf games, he cannot get Trump to do?
0: Graham loves the push and pull with Trump. Trying to get Trump to change his personality, but then knowing he can and explaining that to other Republicans. He's the explainer, the best friend, the confidant, the inside man when it comes to Donald Trump. And there's a sense sometimes that Graham believes he can push Trump in a different direction than a realization that he can't. But what Graham wants to be is in the room with Trump, whether that's on the course, at mar a lago inside the White House. This is someone who wants to help be an advisor to the person he sees as the center of the Republican Party. Graham's colleagues say that he's someone they count on to give a read of where Trump is, that he is someone who they believe can interpret Trump's whims, his moods, his different uh, power centers around him. And they turn to Graham, including McConnell, for advice on how to navigate everything Trump is doing. I mean, in this period, it seems like the thing that Graham really wants is for
1: Trump to stop talking about the election, the stolen election. Can you just describe that argument that he makes
0: and the effect that it actually has um, on Trump? Graham wants Trump to focus on 2024, not 2020. He sees so much opportunity on the horizon for Trump, even now. He wants Trump to put down the grievances, stop claiming the election was a lie. But he also recognizes Trump just won't listen in golf game after golf game, phone call after phone call. Graham is pleading with Trump, stop talking about 2020. Uh, But it it never convinces Trump. Trump hears him out. Sometimes they'll hang up on each other. Sometimes they'll curse at each other. They hear, they're friends, but he can't convince Trump to actually move on.
1: When Kevin McCarthy goes to Mar-a-Lago,
0: can you describe that scene
1: and how important it is and the story of the photograph and Telling the, and the press finding out
0: about it. McCarthy's colleagues are wondering, what's Kevin going to do? Well, McCarthy flies down to Mar-a-Lago, has lunch with Trump. They're sitting there having burgers. They're both trying to lose a little weight. They take the buns off the burgers, and they laugh about that, how they're both friends still after January 6th, guys who can exchange diet tips. McCarthy says to Trump, I want your help for 2022. Help me win back the majority. It was an opportunity on the table laid out for Donald Trump to repair himself. McCarthy didn't need to make it an explicit offer of rehabilitation, but Trump knew it was just that. This was an offer to come back, to begin the Trump comeback. It was McCarthy as a congressional leader who made it happen. McConnell had broken with Trump, wasn't talking to Trump, but McCarthy was willing to fly down to Trump's home to show that kind of of respect to Trump, that he would come to Trump's place, not have Trump come to the Capitol. By going to Mar-a-Lago, McCarthy made so many Trump supporters in the House pleased that the House GOP would remain politically cozy with the former president. But McCarthy's visit appalled others, like Representative Cheney, who saw McCarthy as someone who was ingratiating to the point of embarrassment with the former president. I mean, when we look back on it now, was that a turning point in where the Republican Party was going? McCarthy and McConnell could have led their conferences to break with Trump. McConnell could have convinced his colleagues to convict Trump in the Senate impeachment trial. McCarthy could have told his colleagues that Trump's the past and it's time to build a new future. Instead, McConnell said people should do what they want in the Senate impeachment trial, and he did not vote to convict Trump though he blamed a lot of January 6th on Trump himself. McCarthy goes down to Mar-a-Lago and says to Trump, regardless of what has happened in recent weeks, I still need your help. I need your help to help me win the Speaker's Gavel in 2022. Trump sees in McCarthy a politically pliant person who can help him come back and someone who is not trying to go to war with him, even though there's an opportunity to do just that and to have a full break. Late January in early February 2021 is a moment historians will look back on as a rare window where Republicans could have jumped out and gone in an entirely different direction. They did not. So let's just skip ahead to the end, the anniversary of January
1: 6th when you've got Liz Cheney and her father is the only Republicans there. She's about to be censured and their Republican National Committee is going to issue a statement saying January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Can you also describe? the Republican Party that has been transformed by January 6th, by the decisions that it's made since then, where is the party at that point? And what does that scene represent?
0: January 6th will live in infamy as a moment where Republicans had to make a decision about who each of them are. What does it mean to be a Republican? Your reaction to January 6th an insurrection tells us everything. There was an attack on the U.S. Capitol after a rally held by the President of the United States who was pushing his supporters in Congress and elsewhere to object to an election. The Republican Party for years was in the wilderness, watching President Obama win election after election, watching Democrats win power. When Mitt Romney loses in 2012, many Republicans believe the party is dead. It won't come back. Uh, Paul Ryan and his vision of Medicare and Social Security reform doesn't land with most American people. It doesn't, doesn't land with the working class. After 2012, the Republican Party thought the working class was lost and that the future of the party had to be centrist, that maybe it should move in a different direction. You saw that from Jeb Bush and so many others who ran in 2016. But there was one person on that 2016 stage who said, I actually don't want to go after entitlement reform I want to limit immigration, and I want to have a hard-nosed nationalist appeal to the voter. Trump revolutionized the Republican Party, a free-trade party protectionist. He made a party that was trying to moderate on immigration, a party of border hawks, and restrictive on immigration. Trump changed an entire party. He made overtures to working-class union Democrats, and he made Republicans think inside the halls of Congress— that maybe they could have a new paradigm for the Republican future. But they had a crossroads in 2016. You can win power, but it's going to be with this person who has said all of these different things over the years that are offensive, who has a spotty record on business and politics. You can win power, but it comes at this cost.
2: They took the
0: bargain in 2016, and ever since January 2017, When Trump took the oath of office, the Republican Party has essentially been in lockstep with Donald Trump. The anti-Trump movement, the never-Trump movement, has been on the relative fringes of American politics. It has a large media footprint from time to time, but not a political coalition out in the States. Trump took a searing message on cultural and political issues and made it something that was real to Republicans, a path to power. Power. Power more than ideology, now drives the Republican Party. This is a party that argued for years it came out of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, a conservative Republican Party. Now it's not really even a Republican Party in ethos or necessarily conservative, but populist and power-driven. Where are the people on the right of American politics and even the center moving, the center-left, How can we appeal to them on issues like immigration and trade? And so much of the Republican Party now is about passing policy and winning power behind a personality, not necessarily behind an ideology. The ideology of years past has cracked and fallen away. Now at the center is a personality who perseveres even through defeat, even through chaos, even through two impeachments. Donald John Trump. And he still lingers on the scene, in control, out of office, but in power. So that party, on that moment,
1: and when you see that image of just Liz Cheney
0: and her father. I watched them carefully that day and wondered, are these two people, these Cheneys, the future? Or are they relics of the past? And they might be the latter. Because the Republican Party has remained with Trump. The ghosts of Cheney and Bush and Reagan haunt the halls of the Capitol but have very little influence. This is a party that has moved toward Trump. Representative Cheney desperately wants the Republican Party to come back to the ethos and politics of the past, to get away from Trumpism and try to recreate some of the political coalitions and arguments that elevated the party for decades. But she is waging a lonely battle. The the image of her with her father tells you everything. The Cheneys in Republican politics have retained some respect among the seasoned, more moderate, and conservative people in the party, but they don't have power. Where are the followers? Where are the followers for the Cheney model of Republican politics? She might run in 2024 and try to galvanize Republicans who have been slumbering politically for years from that Reagan-Bush wing, Uh, but she might fail to galvanize people in the coming months as well, in the coming years. The Cheneys are seen by many Republican voters as relics of the past, a past that led the Republican party
1: into war in
0: Iraq intervention in Afghanistan to an expanded government during the Bush years. Even if they see the Chinese as morally respectable, they don't want to return to the politics they represent.
3: We're talking about democracy. What's the state of democracy given the state of the Republican party that you've talked so eloquently about? Um, It's a great
0: question. American democracy is perhaps more fragile than ever. How healthy can a democracy be if a lie is now at the center of a major political party? How healthy can a democracy be if many Republicans, millions of them across the country, won't accept Joe Biden as the rightful president? This is not about red and blue anymore. Those were simpler times, easier times. This is now about democracy, whether people believe in the system that exists or want to overturn it. That's where we are as a nation. I see it as a reporter in all of my travels that this country is not just divided. That's, that's an easy way of framing it. It's not a divided country. It's a chaotic country without a rule book. If people aren't following the rules of democracy, also called the Constitution, if that's not the rule for the whole playing field anymore, then what happens? What happens in a soccer match or on a baseball field if everybody decides to stop following the rules? Chaos. American democracy is at a moment of chaos. This is a reckoning for democracy when a former president refuses to concede and had pressured his own vice president to disrupt the certification of an election, an effort that many have seen as a possible coup in the United States. To even have the word coup thrown around in the United States of America, a country that began in Philadelphia, forged over shared values and philosophies, about a stable system. This was a country that was forged on values, constitutional values, by leaders who wanted a functioning democracy, a country that would have a peaceful transition to power, a country that wouldn't have a military general somehow become a king but a country where a general could return to Mount Vernon after being president and someone else would just quietly take his place. January 6th gets at the core of the founding of America, which is the peaceful transition of power, a presidential system where the next person in line, even if you don't like them, is accepted. We now have a country and a Republican Party that doesn't accept that the transition of power that took place in 2021 was legitimate. It's not just a crisis for American democracy. It's a tragedy.
4: Let me ask
1: you one more thing.
0: You used to talk to Trump with great regularity when you were reporting on him.
3: You generously told us about those conversations many times. If you talk to him now, and I don't know whether you do or not, but how is this Donald Trump different than the Donald Trump you used to talk to?
0: Let it be known, those close to Trump now say he hasn't changed at all. The presidency usually changes people who sit in that office. It hasn't changed Trump. He remains the same person he was who sat around with Roy Cohn in Manhattan in the 1980s and came up with different legal and business schemes. He's the same person who sat on the 26th floor of Trump Tower with Roger Stone in the 1990s and thought, how could I map out a political career He's the same Trump who sat with Steve Bannon in the Oval Office in January of 2017 and said, let's have a disruptive presidency. The Trump who worked with Cohn, with Stone, with Bannon. He's the Trump of 2021. He's the Trump of 2022. This is Donald Trump, unchanging, unflinching. Even with Lindsey Graham, he won't change his mind on the election. His supporters beg him to just move on to a different topic. He won't. He's on the march. Brad Parscale, his former campaign manager, says not only will Trump run again, but he's going to run again with vengeance on his mind. This is a former president who wants vengeance. It's such an unusual moment in America. Usually former presidents go home. Jimmy Carter goes back to planes. George H.W. Bush, after one term, goes back to Texas former presidents Barack Obama, Bill Clinton start to do civic work in the days after their respective presidencies. Donald Trump goes back on the campaign trail, rally after rally, revving his people up, promising, hinting, winking that he's going to be back in 2024. Vengeance at the top of his mind and at the center of his agenda. If you think it was bad January 6th, fall. They're passing voter laws and are saying, "Come January 2025, we'll be ready this time. We'll be ready this time to help out our side."
1: Scary man. It Cut!
2: amazing Yourself!
3: Uh, Trump
1: Crocs with Dementia and Disturbing Interview. Interview. just um, published.
5: Are you American? Is your roof in need of an upgrade? The nationwide roof repair and replacement website.
2: So, folks, Old Donnie did yet another one of his absolutely pathetic interviews tonight. And of course, as per usual, it's not on some big mainstream source, it's on some right-wing show you and I have never heard of up until this point. But it, it demonstrates that this man is begging for media scraps, and he is reeking. Stinking of desperation, of fear, and of delusion right now. And he does that throughout the entire interview, but I have a few clips in particular I want to play for you, and we're going to break them down one by one, tearing into this SOB. He gets a friendly interview, a softball interview, and he still strikes out. Listen to this one first,
3: claiming that there was some kind of red wave. We were, I guess, uh, 233 wins out of about 250 races. Now, that is unprecedented. And this isn't, I'm just not talking about primary, I'm talking about the general election. So we were, uh, we, we had a tremendous, we had a tremendous success. So think of it, 233 victories out of about 250 races, And nobody's ever done anything like that. And I had to keep listening to these fake news people who are all dying in the ratings, just about all of them. I mean, I think I can say all of them because they have no credibility, but they don't want to mention it. They never want to mention it. So I say it as often as possible because people will hear it. But we had a, you know, on a personal basis and on a mega basis, because that's really what it is, because we're all together. We're totally united like never before. Look, we've already mocked Republicans who claimed there was going to be a red wave
2: and then there wasn't. But Trump is one of the only ones that said a red red wave actually happened. Like, most Republicans either said, oh, man, we made mistakes, or I never said there was going to be a red wave in the first place. Trump is like, yeah, there was this great big red wave. You know, that's what the host is saying if you look at the title of the article they said talking about all the big victories and it's because he can't admit defeat because because of his delusion but also he knows that he is getting the lion's share of the blame for what happened and that one of the single biggest blows to his political career and frankly one of the reasons the GOP might sell him out when it comes to him going to prison is because he's a proven loser and he lost that midterm election for them. He's not the only person to blame, obviously, but he's the the (laughs) convenient person to blame, and I think he's the most likely person, the primary reason they lost a lot of those close races, especially in the Senate. His guys were picked. He governor's races. His guys and gals were picked, and they lost every competitive race, essentially. And now look at this. He's still trying to take credit guys for the victory of Kevin McCarthy. And it just comes off as totally, totally
3: desperate. And I have new evidence to prove it. But there's never been anything like this, both in size and but scope and uh, intensity. Intensity. really intensity. And it's been incredible. It's been just an incredible experience. And I felt it was very important that <laughs> we stop all of this nonsense and get together and get somebody. <laughs> Kevin is, uh, if you look at some of the most conservative people... Endorse Kevin. They like Kevin, but, you know, they might have liked somebody more, but they decided that, you know, he was the one that could get in. There was a group of people against all very good people, many good people that were not in favor. You know, that famous group of 20. And I guess all of them were just about all of them, friends of mine, very good friends of mine. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and so many others, you know, that are very, very, uh, you would say hardline right pretty much, but uh, also people that are very, have great common sense. They wanted to see this happen, and I wanted to see it happen, and it was time after 16 or 17 roll calls. And uh, But I endorse Kevin because I think Kevin's going to do a good job, and I think it's going to prove that he does a good job. And I believe that uh, while that was somewhat traumatic as an experience, I believe that the Republican Party has come together, at least that whole group. And if you look at Congress, uh, I believe they've come together like... Almost never before. I think you're going to see great unity, and we should use the debt limit to get the kind of things that we need.
2: So you can hear that, right? He's still trying to make it look like he was one of the ones that got it done, and it was chaos before he got there. He says that both explicitly and implicitly in places, but you know, some brand new reporting, just from today, from a lot of those 20 or so holdouts said that Trump played no role in the process. We've heard this from reporters, but not from the horse's mouth yet, and it says, A number of those never kevin Republicans told ABC News that McCarthy was off base when he credited Trump for his victory, with one lawmaker even declaring the former president had absolutely no influence on any votes changing. President Trump had no influence on the votes I saw for any of my colleagues, Representative Bob Good said. According to Good, it became inevitable that McCarthy would become Speaker, and he simply didn't want to prolong the process even more. Ralph Northam actually criticized Trump for getting involved at all. The former president pushed for Republicans to support McCarthy through two social posts. In fact, I disagreed with him getting involved. And Matt Rosendale, we, we knew this, was pictured on the floor waving off Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene when she was handing him a phone connected to Trump. The Republican lawmaker told ABC News that Trump had no influence on his vote. And then Byron Donalds said that and he was nominated for speaker, also dismissed Trump's influencing his support. So all of these people many of them Trumpers are coming out and saying Donald Trump had no role to play. And it gets even worse here because he does one of his most disgusting things, which is defending the thugs of J6.
5: Mr. President, there are also still many J6 political prisoners sitting in jail. We talk about it on this show all the time. We will not forget about them. And many are still in the terrible D.C. gulag known for treating Americans worse than they treat foreign terrorists. Many President and the entire corporate media have forgotten all about them, but you have not forgotten. You already have people. I've had them on this show working to support the J6 Patriots and their families, working with the Patriot Freedom Project. Please speak to these Patriots and their families. I know some of them have told me they watch this show because we give them hope. Uh, Will you give them some hope for the future?
3: I think it's a disgrace what's been happening. And so many of these people are great patriots and what they've gone through. And then you look at Antifa... And BLM, you look at what's going on there with what they've done in all sorts of places over the last year and a half, two years, where they've burned down cities and they've taken over cities like in Seattle and uh, what they've done to in Minnesota, Minneapolis. And you look at so many and many wow. other places where people have been killed and other than, as you know... Uh, Wonderful Ashley, Uh, nobody died on January 6th, nobody, there was, nobody died, they like to say they did, they didn't, it's a a lie,
1: but uh, Ashley Babbitt died,
3: and she was shot, violently shot, for no reason, there was no way that should have happened, if that ever happened on the other side with the roles reversed, you would have had riots all over the place, what they did to her, but I think it's a disgrace what's happened. It's a one-way street. Nothing happened, virtually nothing happened to all of those people that uh, were burning down cities and everything else. And uh, I think it's going to change. I don't think people are taking it anymore. I think it's going to change. You know why Trump does this?
2: He doesn't do it for, for out of love and loyalty to his thugs. He doesn't. He does not do it for them. He doesn't give a damn about the people rotting in prison. He doesn't care about them. He does it for two reasons, really three. One, because among the base it's popular. He understands that most of his base, most of the GOP hardcore base, support these people and actually do think, against fact and logic, that they're political prisoners. But also, number two, is it's absolutely critical for Donald Trump to encourage people to riot and commit violence in his name as part of his political project and you can't do that if you make it look like you don't care about the people who have gone away so by floating pardons and saying you love them and all of that it increases the likelihood that they're going to continue to do violence in your name right like that's a simple reality and finally he does it because he sees them as his potential future Like, he sees them and he's like, oh man, they went to prison. I actually planned the whole thing. I could go to prison too. I don't like this. So therefore, I'm going to defend them as a way of defending myself. But then, you know, he he continues to be absolutely crazy as he attacks all of his advisors. And it basically goes in to uh, everything was a conspiracy against him.
5: Always throw out to the audience uh, what they wanted me to ask you. And when I talk to people on the ground for you, maybe they live in the Midwest where I'm from or in the South where I started my broadcasting career, or maybe they're MAGA moms who just love you. MAGA moms love you, President. I hope you know that. Um, they do just about anything for you because they're trusting their children's future to your completion of your presidency. Um, the thing that they want to know... There are some that you've trusted who have betrayed you. There are some even today who you've trusted as even part of your White House inner circle, if you will, who seem to be not as loyal, maybe, as your most loyal followers would like. Being trusting of people, President, is certainly not a character flaw, uh, but many of us feel protective of you and your presidency, and this audience wants to know how you can prevent the sort of betrayals we've seen in the past. We don't want to see anyone else, like Mitch McConnell's wife. We don't want to see anybody else betray this president that we love and trust. Can you talk to us about that?
3: Well, it has happened, and what they don't talk about, and what I do because I think You know, we've had some tremendous people in the administration. I rebuilt the military. Uh, We've had generals. I defeated ISIS and so many other things. And, you know, we have some great people that I got to know so well, generals that, you know, won that war on ISIS that was going on forever. And I had it I done in a very short period of time. Uh, but we had some, some great people on the cabinet. Uh, I mean, I could name, I could name them, but I hate to do it because I leave out others, and uh, yeah. they'll feel <laughs> slighted. So I hate to do it. But we had, you know, mostly great people. But at the same time, you know, we have people that uh, cashed in, and I guess different than Obama and Bush and others where maybe there's less passion or something. But what happens with me is, you know, they're loyal, and then all of a sudden they get offered a lot of money to say bad things, only if they're interested. The only interest is if they say bad things. And they end up trying to take money to write a book. I mean, there's so so many phony statements that were put out. When I hear somebody said that uh, I attacked a Secret Service agent in the front of the car, these are powerful right. guys. They lift weights all day long. I don't do that. They <laughs> wrestle all day long.
2: So you listen to that, and you say to yourself, This is a man who clearly had a bunch of people not like him. And I'm not going to say that when people don't like you, it's always your fault. But with someone like Trump, if one person doesn't like you or a couple people don't like you, then it might be their fault. If everybody doesn't like you and doesn't get along with you and they're always quitting or getting fired by you and resigning and all of that, then it's your fault. Trump's like Trump. If one Trump neighbor hated him, it would be their fault. If every Trump neighbor hated him, it's his fault. And they all do. And then he closes out with this absolute cult-like message that's on the one hand pretty banal, but also spine-tingling in a bad way.
5: I have all confidence in you, President Trump. I think this audience does, too. Do you have anything specifically to say to them before we close?
3: Well, I just want to thank you for your support. I have to tell you, you've been my friend for a long time, and uh, you get it. You understand it. You love the country. You know what has to be done. And your listeners and viewers, they understand it. So... Uh, we've announced we're going to win. I think we're going to win big. The polls have come out. We're winning in the Republican Party, beating everybody by a lot because we do have to do that first, even though sometimes it's not as nice to say, but we have to win. And uh, then we'll uh, go on to whoever the candidate is. I don't know who the candidate's going to be, but whoever the candidate is, uh, the, the biggest fear and the thing we have to do focus on those days of the election where. Rigged votes and ballots aren't dropped and uh, machines aren't stuffed and people aren't dealing with the uh, media and forcing them to do maybe what they don't even want to do and other things. We have to make sure we have honest elections.
5: Well, I think we're all looking forward to that next election, that more honest election, hopefully. President Trump, all of MAGA Nation has your back because you've had ours from day one. We love you. We thank you for being here tonight. And we pray for you all the time. God's greatest blessings on you and your beautiful family that have sacrificed so much for this republic. Thank you, Mr. President.
3: Thank you, Gina. You're terrific. Thank you very much
5: like that's how he indoctrinates
2: his cult kind of to close this he he makes it like oh like we're the only people with the answers and you're the smart people and everyone else is the dumb people and he creates this kind of echo chamber that's corrosive to democracy when you ask yourself how did the big lie happen how did J6 happen how did the Q people happen how do all the conspiracies happen and then keep happening This is why. And this is why we expose these fringe interviews. They might not be seen by much people beyond the far right, but we all need to understand what Trump is saying when his guard is down to the people that like him.
5: So your message said you wanted to talk about insurance? I said I want you to talk about insurance. Most people know that bundling home and auto saves you money. Keep going. But did you know that new customers who bundle with Progressive can save an average of $800? Sleeping baby. Oh. Looking sweet.
2: This channel is part of the History Hit Network.
1: We are the first peoples of the Americas,
4: we have the beginning.
1: Our ancestors navigated by the wind and star, crossing vast oceans and mountain ranges, searching for new lands. Over thousands of years. Our ancestors became astronomers, buried secrets and of the Native American civilizations, and scientists, artists, and inventors. We okay. created distinct societies and built a vast trade systems that covered two continents. In
4: 1492, our world was changed forever, but we did not disappear.
1: Private Absolutely. Lives of the Pharaohs, if you love the
0: Ancient, history, ancient Egyptian Fixation
1: with Death history and history Reincarnation, history Private, history. Private Netflix, Lives of the Pharaohs, dedicated
0: just to ad-free
4: history documentaries, including a huge library of ancient history content from the Ninth Legion, to, Burtica, to the Star. Now you can get
0: a huge discount on history pictures each say. Simply check out the details in
4: the description below and make sure to use code Odyssey to sign up.
3: Anyway, on with the show.
1: For nearly
4: 3,000 years, ancient Egypt was the greatest civilization on Earth. And in their temples, tombs, and artifacts, they left a beautiful, detailed record of their lives. But many mysteries remain. Now, however, it's become impossible to decipher yet another vast store of information which the Egyptians left about themselves. They're dead. New scientific techniques are allowing Egyptian mummies to reveal secrets of their lost world. Scientists are now able to study the DNA of the pharaohs and are unraveling the truth about the rise and fall of one of Egypt's greatest families, the 18th dynasty.
2: It's a very hard thing to get ancient DNA out. And when when we actually see that on the gel, and we see the sequence, and we can show that this is something that has come from 3,500 years ago, that's a very exciting time.
4: This is working. That's what's exciting. It is working. We are getting results. The DNA uh, readouts are showing that we can take cutting-edge scientific skills and apply them to a very interesting question. Who are these people? What are their diseases? I think this is a remarkable problem. Might this great family have been affected by a genetic disease? And did that bring about its sudden end? And was that the real tragedy of the young king? Tutankhamun? The search for answers began with the extraordinary discovery that occurred in Luxor in 1922, and which changed forever the way the ancient civilization of Egypt was perceived. The discovery took place in the so-called Valley of the Kings. Beneath a pyramid-shaped mountain, this valley was where the pharaohs of the New Kingdom had been buried. For five lonely years, an English archaeologist, Howard Carter, had been searching here for the tomb of a minor pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, Tutankhamun. His hope was that Tutankhamun was so unimportant that his tomb might have escaped the robbers, who over the millennia had stripped many of the tombs in the valley of their contents. His backer, Lord Carnarvon, agreed to fund one last season for Carter to search in a triangular area of ground, which so far remained unexplored.
5: Mr. Carter! Mr. Carter!
4: Carter had only been digging for two days in early November when an unusual find was made. A step down into the sand. It might have been nothing, but that step became a flight of 16 steps. The flight of steps led to a corridor and the corridor led Howard Carter to the most astonishing find in the history of archaeology. A hoard of treasure, unlike anything which had ever been seen before. This amazing discovery focused attention for the first time of the little-known fellows who had been buried here and on the fate of the dynasty that died with him.
0: Robert.
4: To this day, Tutankhamun and the end of his family remain mysterious. But amongst the treasures, Howard Carter made a discovery which could now give scientists the critical new piece in the puzzle of he, he dynasty. An unremarkable box contained two miniature coffins. And when Carter opened the coffins, tiny mummies, Hmm. the mummies of two unborn children. Hmm. But who these children were, why they died, and whether their death might be linked to the end of the dynasty, are questions which have never been answered.
2: Did that one have fangs? Don't have fucking fame. Millions
0: of Americans are getting up to $2,800 in benefits this week. Pay close attention because this is your last chance to qualify for.
4: Today, Tutankhamun's treasure takes up almost a quarter of the total space in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Many of the exquisite pieces show tantalizing glimpses of the life of the boy king who came to the throne before he was 10 and died at the age of 18. <coughs> And why did his whole family die out with The 18th dynasty is probably the most remarkable of all the Egyptian ones. Even one and a half thousand years before Christ, in what's known as the New Kingdom, they carved out lots of the Egyptian Empire. Over a period of some 200 years, they use their growing wealth to be some of the most splendid monuments ever built. What's known about them? A few <laughs> pieced together from engravings on tomb and temple walls proclaiming their achievements. From the great female pharaoh Hatshepsut to the warrior pharaoh Tutmosis III, these rulers were at the head of a state at the peak of its power. But with Tutankhamun the family came abruptly to an end. No one knows why the dynasty died out, but the dynasty may have begun with a brother-sister married, and there has been speculation that the family had become dangerously inbred, as successive pharaohs yeah. also married. Now the rulers themselves could provide the answer. The Cairo Museum is home to more than 30 of the Egyptian royal family, including many from the 18th dynasty. Nasri Iskander, who's in charge of the mummies, has been moving them from their old boxes into new climate-controlled cases. It's provided a unique opportunity to examine the mummies, and for the first time, attempt to obtain their DNA.
3: To have a tissue
2: from more than three thousands of years is not available any day. Uh, Once we are putting this in the new showcases, we are not going to touch it before 10 or 20 years.
4: Dr. Iskander hoped that the DNA of the 18th dynasty pharaoh might help resolve some of the questions which still surround the dynasty. He invited two American scientists to Cairo to help. Microbiologist Scott Woodward and archeologist Wilfred Griggs are two of the world's leading experts in the new science of ancient DNA. They come from Brigham Young University in Utah, which specializes in understanding genealogy. Working with other Egyptian mummies, the two had already shown that it's possible to extract DNA and obtain valuable information about individuals who lived thousands of years ago.
0: There's been a lot of speculation about the genetics of the 18th dynasty. Uh, What was the level of inbreeding? How much brother-sister marriage did we really have? And did that cause a problem with the health of these individuals? Is that a reason
2: why the 18th dynasty died out? Those are some questions that may be approachable using the DNA.
4: Much of the family, spread over some 12 generations, was stacked in Nasri Iskander's laboratory, awaiting their new cases. But little has been known for certain about their exact relationships. And in, in, in this, uh, there are the, uh, two ladies, two queens, Nefertari and Kamis, the two wives of I. Uh, and also here. Scott and Wilfred were hoping that if, as well as the royal family, they could obtain the DNA of the fetuses found with Tutankhamun. And they could build up a complete family tree of the 18th dynasty. Could this be grandfather? And and. Uh, uh, and who was this unidentified relative? The team were hoping that this mystery skull could provide an important clue about the end of the dynasty. This shadowy figure was thought to be closely related to Tutankhamun. Some had suggested it might actually be his father. If so, it was possible that he could provide a direct glimpse of the genetic defect which might ultimately have brought down the dynasty. In a project which would last several years, Scott and Wilfred planned to recover the DNA from the mummies one by one as the recasing work proceeded. But they also wanted to track down the foetuses which they'd been told.